What's in the donut? Board a plane to get jacked in the sky <laughs> and listen to the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies no one else wants to talk about, usually for as, for as long as it takes to watch them. Uh, this is episode number 159 and my name is Jakub. And my name is Randy. <laughs> and today, boy, do we have a doozy. So today we are talking about Skyjacked, which is the first episode of our uh, February theme of Terror in the Sky. S- uh, well, t- air or? T air or? <laughs> I thought about that. T A I R O R. Terror or? Air terror. Yeah, we're going to be talking about um, a bunch of films sort of connected at the hip uh, by a theme of stuff hap- happening on a plane. And they're all made in the 70s. One of them is not on a plane. Just saying. Um, but yeah, so this is the first episode in, in this theme. And that's kind of a jumping off point for, for this episode was the conversation we had at this point two weeks ago about non-stop, which was, well, a thriller set on a plane with Liam Neeson in our Liam Neeson's month. So that's kind of what we do here. I'm not going to really repeat myself. But, you know, in connection to this... Uh, on our Patreon, you will be able to hear us talk about next Wednesday, I think, by the time of this release. I think next Wednesday. So we're going to be talking about Airport, which is arguably the seminal sky thriller of the 70s. The one who that launched, I think, quite a bit more than just the terror in the sky situation. I think it was one of the first disaster films of its era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and actually, if this, if this holds, I was just thinking to myself, there is a... Because, yeah, there, there, there is, we, we could at some point do in the future, like a reloaded sort of section of themes, because stuff that's set in the 70s, we can actually easily redo in the 90s. Uh, Ooh, because yeah, there's true. these three air, te- air sky terror films in the 90s, like Turbulence, Air Force One, Executive Decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've already done one. Like, I know that uh, there's a Sean Connery meteor, I think in 1980 or 79. Um and then that, of course, you've got Armageddon and Deep Impact, and we've already, you know, yeah. <laughs> walked walk the surface of that comet. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, there's a bunch that we could do. There's there's a lot of stuff to do. Uh, so yeah, so this is what we're doing this month. Uh, however, before we did so, also just a gentle reminder, we did a few conversations about Spike Lee, who is the new hero of our long-term operations. We're going film by film comprehensively through the cinema of Spike Lee and we started with She's Gotta Have It last week and School Days that just landed on our Patreon. Also on our Patreon later towards the end of the month we're going to talk about Near Dark in continuation of our new Catherine Bigelow marathon and all that is available on our Patreon which is patreon.com slash uncutgemspod for just three bucks a month. You can go and listen, join our little club and get access to all these shows plus I want to say like almost 80 or maybe more than 80 more. Quite a few in there. Um, so go and do that. And if you don't feel like spending money every month, you can always leave us a donation. 
ko-fi.com slash uncountrymspod or if you don't feel like spending money, just leave us a review or just tell a friend. That's all we ask. Just tell someone. So, without any further ado, why don't we just get on board that Boeing 707 and get jacked. Let's do it. <laughs> so, let's get jacked. Let's get skyjacked. Hank, we're there. I'll take it, Sam. Anchorage, we are now entering restricted Russian airspace. We barely read you. Where's that damn clearance? Here they come. Looks like three of them, maybe four. Sergeant, we've got to turn back. Straight ahead, Captain. Anchorage, Russian fighters, dead ahead. Down the gear. What the hell are you doing, Hank? Sit down the gear. Soviet Air Commander, Soviet Air Commander, this is Global Flight 502. I am an unarmed American civilian airliner being forced off course by a hijacker. I have lowered my gear, I have reduced my airspeed. Uh, right, okay, so Skyjacked, that's directed by, I'm gonna butcher this, John Guillermin? Guillermin. No idea. I I think, um, yeah, Guillermin. Guillermin. And it's written by Stanley Greenberg. Um, and it's a film that follows the intense events aboard a hijacked commercial plane. Passengers and crew navigate a high-stakes situation as they try to cope with the unfolding crisis while authorities work to resolve the airborne threat. And the film stars Charlton Heston, uh, James Brolin, and a bunch of other people. Um... Yeah, so, and, well, one one of the things that kind of, I, I want to say, uh, and what actually is based on the book, let's start with that. So the, the film is based on a book uh, titled Hijacked, and it's from 1970, which ironically also came out at, at the time that Airport came out. Um, however, the, the book was more or less a culmination of the era, because I think all throughout the 60s, there were like almost 160, 150 hijackings over the American airspace. So actually just getting getting a, getting on a plane that's hijacked was, was not actually uncommon, I think. Um, so, yeah. So that, and the film is kind of a, resi- a result of that anxiety. Um, yeah, and the rights to this book were bought by Walter Zeltzer. And then he... Actually, by the way, Walter Zeltzer is a producer who also did... Uh, a bunch of films with Charlton Heston. So I think four of them. One of them would be... So this. And then mm-hmm. just before that was The Omega Man. And just after that was Soylent Green. And he, they did another one. I can't remember. Yeah. But these were consecutive. Like these yes. three films in like four years. And they're boom, boom, boom for, for each yeah. of them, I think. Yes, exactly. So they yeah, so, so they all come very close together. Uh, and fun little story. I think Charlton Heston did this movie because they they told him that they could um, he could use some footage from Ben Hur to use in this Anthony and Cleopatra film. So he kind of did this because of that. Uh, yeah. So I don't. know. They, they shot this film in like early 1972. They actually shot it on a um, on an actual plane. Um, so they they actually filmed almost like ninety percent of it inside of an actual uh seventy seven oh seven set, um yeah and apparently 
Charlton Heston compared this. Well, he he thought this is this is what doing lifeboat with Hitchcock must have felt like. I think he was <laughs> underestimating how crammed the lifeboat was. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> And the quality of the script. And the quality of... Uh, yeah, well, we're we'll going to get there. to it in a second. Um, so, yeah. So, and there's quite a lot of uh, real-life aerial footage involved in the film as well. Um, <laughs> Charlton Heston's a little bit... Let's just say he was surprised at how little you, you get to see him because he was used to being a star in the film. So he even started writing his diary, apparently, that about how little he gets to be in the film. Um, but, yeah. So he thought, and I quote from his diary, Skyjack looked surprisingly good. I was relieved to see. It seems very tight. A pleasure for a change to be in a film that runs under two hours. It's been some time. Uh, so the movie was released in 1972 Two. in May. Uh, and I want to say, I don't know, it's hard to say, six and a half million in rentals, I suppose, on a $1.7 million budget. So it was a profitable film. And I think MGM... Quotes it as one of his bigger hits of that year, together with Shaft and Kansas City Bomber. Um, so that's that, and also critically, it's just called, it was received. Uh, call it mixed, but I think it's mixed to positive. Um, so let me just give you a few quotes as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, it was re reappraised later on as well. So like now it's now it's some some people actually take pleasure in really liking this. We're gonna get to it in a second. So that some people call it a solid piece of classical entertainment, which is one of the best movies made at MGM under the regime of James Aubrey. And dot dot dot. Charlton Heston was born to play a pilot. Um, <laughs> Um, some people also said this is a straightforward, simple, mean little suspense thriller, extremely well told by director John Guillermo and screenwriter Stanley Greenberg, and unpretentiously, uh, uh, unpretentiously unembellished. So I'm gonna stop waffling, and I'm gonna ask you what you think about it. So that's Skyjacked in a nutshell. As like, there's very little sort of ancillary n- information about it. So I'm gonna leave it here for now and. Randy, you tell me what did what did you think? Did well, you get skyjacked, or did well, you get hijacked, or did you just get jacked, or did you get jacked off? Well, I tell you what I did in the sky. This is a sky. I sky shat is what I did. I this film is a sky jackass is what this is. I really thought this was a terrible film. I honestly, I think and this you might bought it, be, didn't you? <laughs> you bought it on iTunes. I, I, I did. Um, this is possibly the worst film that I've seen as, as part of doing the show with you. Man, the quest, but... Mm, uh, <laughs> Are you serious? I think this is really a horrible, amateurish uh, film. I, I understand that it's, um, it's, it's very much a product of its time. As you said, there's a lot of fear about, you know, f- uh, flying. And I remember that fear even extending into the 80s um, because there were still, you know, hijackings here and there. And there were bombs, you know, there, there was a bomb that took down a plane over Canadian soil. I remember, I remember vividly, I think this is 1988 or so, like the, the bomb that blew up over Lockerbie, Scotland. So I, I yeah, th- this is something, and I think that, you mentioned there was some 150 or something just over the skies in the United States over 
a decade or whatever it was. I, I think in mm-hmm. other jurisdictions that, you know, the, the fear was greater, um, you know, because there's even more unrest in, in other parts of the world. So I get that. I get that there's two um, also uh, returning military personnel from the theater of war in Vietnam and that a, a lot of soldiers, a lot of veterans experience trauma over there. I think this film is is trying to tap into that idea with uh, our, our villain. We'll, we'll get into Shane Brolin. Um, but honestly, I think this is a James very... James Brolin. Oh, what? sorry. Did I say shame? Yeah. My bad. Shane <laughs> <Hey>, Brolin. <laughs> I thought you said Shane Brolin. No, I said shame oh. because this film is just really... I can really hate it. Oh, I really, really dislike this film. Uh, it feels like it's got, so these are the elements that I so can sort of appreciate where the, the idea was born. And then you have the hit that airport was. So you want to sort of launch off that and try to try to make your own. So I, I get it, but this is a film that is very, very poorly realized. It feels like a TV of the week. There's, we talked about uh, a couple instances, the commuter and nonstop, where there's this mystery on the public transit. You know, we got to find out, you know, who the who the bomber is or who the who the, the person is, you know, that uh, the bad guys are looking for or whatever. We talked about that. That's in here a little bit, and it's terrible. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it, and the pilot, Charlatan Heston himself, has to come out. <laughs> And, and conduct this investigation and he's blaming the little girl from the partridge family and he's just you did this why did you do this like this is an investigation like is it the script is really weak and poorly thought through um there's a bizarre level of racism in it which we'll probably get to um but i just feel not sure this level really of res- racism is bizarre i think it's let's just say error appropriate <laughs> oh there's some <laughs> the poor uh her name is lovejoy one of the flight attendants and yep. everyone bosses her around like nothing but anyway to me like it's almost a hilarious level of racism because at the end when she jumps out onto the shoot the the men on the ground that are supposed to, that are catching everyone else they let her slide right by and she lands on her ass <laughs> it's like, at any rate yeah this Do you think she was fit. just annoying on set and then do it? <laughs> no, I don't think that. I think it's just this, an this overlooked is just character. Sort of these uh, little but- microaggressions that she's just being like, does this have soya milk? And I'm just like, oh, Christ, Karen. And she's like, okay, when she slides down, don't catch her. <laughs> no, it's not that. I think that all the characters here um, come from a world probably where they were acting as tough guys and men's men in Westerns. And that's that's really what they're they're bringing to their roles in this. I, I think that, you know, the Heston, he's basically a cowboy. And, you know, so are a lot of the characters here. It, it's just, it's poorly realized at a, at a time in an era in Hollywood where they're trying to figure out, well, what's the next big thing? How can we sort of package entertainment? So we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, new Hollywood coming along and, you know, giving ideas and sort of tapping into people's uh, imagination. And then Friedkin did it sort of with the horror bit with uh, The Exorcist. Um, I think that 
the disaster film is something that we haven't really talked about and it's Hollywood's attempt to do that. And this is a knockoff and I don't want to call it, call it a cheap knockoff because I think the intent was there, but they didn't know how to Xerox a hit. They didn't know how to use one film as a template and, and run with it. So this is just like a poorly realized script. The, the characters are ridiculously thin. They don't, they don't behave normally at all there's weird romances and flashbacks it's just everything seems to have been written around a coffee table and uh, and not a coffee table of artists and just sort of thrown together um, in a similar fashion to elements that you might get from a tv of the week because this felt very familiar to you know tv shows of the late 70s and 80s that i recall so yeah having said that uh yeah didn't really care for it that much. What about you? <laughs> You're not going to like this. I'm going to like this film. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I think predominantly this might, like I looked at my brief letterbox write up and so it's two sentences. It's all about these sort of aerial sequences. Mm-hmm. I feel kind of just, I, I kind of get, I have these romantic um, ideas about those times when, if you wanted to actually go and get a good shot, you had to get into a helicopter and shoot it, you know, or something to that effect. You had to go outside and do it because mm-hmm. there is no green screen to do it for you, right? So I think I kind of it's kind of on the back of that, and uh, <laughs> I don't know. I found it almost, I mean, inoffensive in a way. I can, it's not the best. I'll put it that way, but. I think I've I managed to maybe either successfully attune myself to how little how how low the ceiling is, or maybe my ceiling was already still kind of like adequately lowered after like a whole month of knee ceiling. Um, that I didn't really mind. I, I mean, I take your I take all your points. I'm just like, yep, you're not wrong here. Just <laughs> looks like a knockoff of a of a Hollywood film just done on a budget, but it kind of. Kind of sort of works. I mean, it falls apart in places in such a spectacular way. But you know, like, other than that, I don't necessarily mind. And actually, I watched <laughs> this morning. This morning, I watched um, the horror at thirty-seven thousand feet, which is I think nineteen seventy-three, mm-hmm. and that was a made-for-TV film just in that vein. And it's about this sort of I don't know. There's this scientist who's who has this. I don't know, like soil samples in a cargo of a hold of a of a plane, and there are these poltergeists in there. They're just sort of ghosts of some druids that he's smuggled out of England, and they take over the plane. You need to watch this to just is this reassess the Shatner you. one. Is there, is there a Shatner in this? At, at this is, point, is, I don't know. I think I may have William suppre- Shatner in this, and is this like there's a gremlin? No, no, there is no gremlins in there. Okay. You can't see anyone in there. Okay. So all these villains are just, it's just wind. Okay. <laughs> so that's kind of what it is. So I think uh, I'm thinking of an episode of Twilight Zone, maybe, where there's a gremlin on a plane. And is, uh, is that, is that sh- what Joe Dante sh- was using as a... Uh, I know that Shadow in the Shadow in the Cloud with Chloe Grace Moretz, which I sort of liked, is sort of is sort of loosely based on 
this idea of there's a gremlin on the outside of the plane. Oh no, there it is. William Shatner is in there. Okay, but there's no gremlins on any on, on anything. Okay. It's just ghosts. Um, it's just wind and cold. <laughs> That's all this is. Um, yeah. So that so so you watch this and you realize, oh, actually, that Charlton Heston film is not that bad. Um, but overall, I think it's just okay. Maybe it's ten minutes longer than it needs to be. It's not necessarily the last ten minutes that it needs to have cut off. Um, but overall, I didn't really mind it. However, I this and this is a kind of a point of conversation that you already touched on. But I think this is kind of one of one of the few big points I think that we probably will end up touching before just really going home because. Again, famous last words. Not sure this movie sustains sustains a conversation that's as long as the film itself. Uh, see. So this may be one of those few episodes of the show that couldn't function as a as an audio commentary to to this movie. Um, but the question is, like you alluded to this already, with like William Friedkin coming in with like the French Connection, nineteen seventy one, and Exorcist, The Exorcist, sorry in 1973 and you have all the sort of the post the graduate the new hollywood coming in redefining what entertainment is and finding entertainment in realism how do you think this movie fits into the picture right or does it even try well yes uh, okay so on this i i think that as the needle is sort of turning in the late sixties and you've got things like midnight cowboy and the graduate and, you know, just these voices are, are starting to emerge. And then you've got some uh, success from, you know, more independent sources, even though they probably get distributed by the studios, things like easy rider and what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is happening is that the old mainstay action film, which was the Western that's dead. The musical is dead. Audiences are are changing and want something else. And I think you've got an investment in some of these new voices, which we've talked about quite a bit. But at the same time, I think you've got the old studio hands. Now, I don't necessarily know a lot of the about the nuances of how the, the studio system ran before. Uh, but you'd have a stable of directors and you'd have a stable of actors and they were under contract and scripts would come up and they just sort of workshop something in house and turn it into a production i feel maybe that's what something like towering inferno and the poseidon venture and airport and and ultimately this is um where it fits into the new hollywood discussion and the way times are changing in the 70s is probably that it's aware very in a very real sense it's aware of what's going on in the world whereas with westerns we'll say or musicals there'd be thematic connections or even the horror uh yeah the horrors or the sci-fis of the 50s 60s you'd have these thematic leaps where you can say oh well this is uh you know this is a communist fear uh type of film or this is connected to you know the civil rights movement like it was often thematically that that was uh breached but here i think that in the spirit of realism you've got the guys that are minding the shop back at what studio says was this Columbia as well? Uh, MGM. Oh, so I think the, the boys who are minding the shop back at MGM, how do we do something that's a little bit more real? I, I think they're stable of directors. They're not the artful ones, 
but they've got a sense of let's tap into, you know, there are a lot of these hijackings and bombs on planes. Like this is a legitimate fear. Let's make a movie about that. I think also too, the television industry is maturing at a time at this time too. So you, you've got more uh, TV films that are coming out with this type of content as well. Like you mentioned the, was it terror at 37,000 feet? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think that, I think that's the that's how this is is connected to the time. But I think that the folks who are the the, the the folks who are making the film are the folks that would have been making the the bigger hits in the fifties and sixties. Like that that's what I feel is. I think that John Geierman, like I think he's a guy who's been around forever at this point. I'm gonna check. John Geierman. Uh... John Geierman, yeah. So he. Uh, King Kong, King Kong, it was him. So what have we got before? Like, so yeah, he goes back to the fifties. I was Monty's double Tarzan's greatest adventure. Never let go. Um, yeah, I don't know if I can draw any conclusions from this, but at any rate, my suspicion is that this is a film that is it's greenlit at the, production level as opposed to being a project that a writer and director or an auteur is developing. I think that this is a project that we need a director for it. And uh, John Guyerman, who'd been doing projects for 20 years, they, they bring in him and he just, he knows the assignment goes and does it, but I don't think that he's necessarily an artful storyteller. I think he's just sort of going through the script. I think it's one of those types of, jobs and not necessarily bringing anything to it so I, I think he's just you know a working man and and doing his job but as such every element of this is pedestrian with the exception uh that you pointed out which is i think is doing a lot of heavy lifting for you it's there are some really cool and impressive uh shots with you know airplanes in close proximity to one another and you know some of this almost top gun type of uh, footage is sort of fun to watch. So I'll, I'll give it that. Um, but in every other way, it's, it's very plain and ordinary and uh, sort of a dud, like in terms of, uh, conjuring any emotions. So I guess that's how I see it. Mm -hmm. I I think you're right. Ramble, ramble my way through Uh, what I think of it. I think that's kind of, that's kind of it because for me, this is, like I, I see this as airport comes in in 1970 and then this is kind of okay well mind you we're we're going to have a conversation about airport next week um so i haven't seen it yet and this is something i haven't seen at all so i'm kind of talking out of my ass but like i've seen enough of these sort of 1970s disaster films to almost see them as as you kind of say, like a studio response to the new Hollywood. What? How do you produce pro- produce your way into the new Hollywood space? Because the new Hollywood is sort of auteur driven. I can mean it's mm-hmm. still backed and um, reinforced and bolstered by studio level vision. Like if you, I don't know. If you know anything about how the Godfather came together, there's there's always a studio mogul sort of behind it who has his ducks in a row. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, who knows? It's just like, this is what young people want to see. They don't want to see any of this sword and sandal horseshit. They want to see something real, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they want to have, be in touch with their real lives, with real America or real something. I don't know, something that smells like actual life. And, and this, yeah, and this yeah. is this is something where, uh, you know, I think Vietnam and also like the Hollywood escapism, just having had twenty or more years of that, is just reaching maturity, right? Things go in waves. Y- yes, I would probably say yeah. For for me, this is a, a kind of like the the big studio moguls and at MGM, the studio that you know, like just a few short years before they did like Doctor Zhivago, you know. This is the kind of movies that they know how to make and they think that how do we do what we know how to do best but try to tap into what what we think people want to see. So how do we engine how do we a tap into what potentially is a gold mine because these people responded very well to that airport film. How do we tap into this? And as a result of this I think they kind of engineered this subgenre of a disaster film because Guillermo comes back for the towering inferno and as a result into the revival of the monster film as in with king kong and king o- king mm-hmm. king kong lives right um so it's kind of like the disaster film is a studio answer to a new hollywood film in my mind in a way because it looks like it's set in some kind of a reality but it's still a piece of like this sort of big spectacle big studio escapism I think this is kind of what they're doing here. And then it, if you watch this film while trying not to hate it, <laughs> it kind of looks like a 60s film. Yeah. Right? I didn't watch this film that way. For because I watched it and it was Charlton Heston looks like he's like a captain aboard like a spaceship in the planet of the apes almost, right? Like he, he looks like the same guy. He doesn't look like the... Well, I might as well just get to him now. Because Charlton Heston is kind of like this a problem in here, almost, right? Because it's a film set in the 70s. It's made in the 70s. And I think it's we're going to touch on the Vietnam thing in a second. But I'm just thinking maybe this is a good segue to Charlton Heston, right? Because I think, well, the movie's trying to tap into something real. And they're doing this with these real aerial shots. So it's not set on a sound stage. They're trying to uh, approximate reality somehow with their sort of matching interior sets or maybe they even built it out of a whole 707 not sure if they filmed it on an actual plane or they just built something that looked like a plane not sure um but <laughs> they they're trying to approximate what a 70s film would look like like but they're but all they know how to do is sword and sandal films mm-hmm. so they don't know how to put they don't know that they can you know, like there's a difference. Well, like a bullet is from what 1968, and this film tries to look like bullet somehow with it with it with its camera moves. Mm-hmm. But they don't know that in order to make this movie look the part, they need to hire someone younger. They need to get Steve McQueen to be in it. Yeah. But they have Charlton Heston, and how does Charlton Heston kind of fit in here? Does it does he even like again a question like how does he fit in here, and does he fit at all? Right? What's 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 your take on Charlton Heston here? Charlatan Heston, <laughs> and, and I don't know that I, Dumb. I don't know too many of his films, um, but he is really, really out of place here. I think that you're on to something that um, this is some this is a role that should probably be long to 
someone like Rock Hudson or, you know, someone, someone younger, maybe a little bit more cool. But at, at the end of the day, I, this, this is, I think you're hundred percent right. This, Dustin this Hoffman. <laughs> probably a t- little too young at this point. Um, you wouldn't buy him as a young captain. Maybe it's not, it's not crazy talk, but I think that's. Do you know who this film you know, needs? Buck Gene Henry Hackman. Gene Hackman is Paul perfect. Newman. Roy Scheider probably looks a little bit older than his age was at the time. Exactly. So, yeah. Precisely. So just Heston pillage, is from just, the is from all the Bible the, movies. Exactly. Right? Pillage all the all the cast from the French Connection. You're gonna get somewhere. So and there's another piece. So when a studio makes a film, one thing that's different with this mentality of making a studio film when this is concocted at you know sort of a boardroom level get james James con yeah but i think (laughs) one thing at the one thing at the studio level is there's this element of control so we've got all these actors we've got a stable of actors and we've got a stable of stars that, that we can go to so there's that and i think that's a piece um but also we can control the environment of the whole shoot if it's on a sound stage so it feels like you're in an artificial space and the sets here aren't too bad, but it's still, it has that feel that you're, you're on a set. You're on the USS enterprise yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or something like that. I, mean, I don't know. Is this, is this the feel of a set or is this the feel of the sixties? Because all these um, flight attendants, they kind of look like they're from like an Austin Powers sort of set. And is, is this just the fashion of its time as well? That I think it's partly the fashion, but I think, I think too, this is an approximation of something a little bit more real, but to me, it still feels like this weird set where you've got the the first class and they're this weird curtained off place. And then you've got this little weird space in the uh, first class cabin where you've got like a card table or something for people to sit at. It's just, it's just really I mean, is this how odd planes, to me. What it's a huge like? cockpit. I, yeah. The cockpit is enormous, and I did sort of wonder myself, maybe this was an actual size, but I doubt it. I, th- I think still that they're trying to c- control the atmosphere so that they can get the camera in there. Um, it's. I wonder if this was actually the right size, because maybe in the, back in the day they didn't have all the instrumentation, so they had to fit more than two people in it. Mm-hmm. Because there was the guy who like sits to the side like the navigator. You have to have all these extra people manning the cockpit, right? Right, who has a couple awkward moments where uh, Heston gives some sort of a command and this this third wheel uh, alt captain, he reaches between the pilot and the co-pilot and he just touches a little switch and it's just the weirdest move. I just felt like this this third wheel uh, guy in the cockpit was just (laughs) awkward throughout. And I think that that was a thing. I only know it to be a thing or i think it was a thing just really by virtue of um the zucker films because uh in oh, this airplane, film was a protoplast to airplane by the way oh uh, totally. yeah absolutely absolutely <laughs> but they had a third as i recall they had a third did they not they had a third string yeah so uh, i'm wondering like, is this just what it was like and they the cockpit had to be a little bit wider and then as or just a little bit longer so as a result of the um like shrinkage of the equipment and the fact that everything got a bit more sophisticated. So they get to just like shrink the cockpit. So they got to fit like another row of seats, which means probably a thousand dollars. Probably. I I still sort of think that 
everything's a little bit bigger than it was even then um, in this set because there's a people are walking down the aisle in the plane two by two. You know, yeah, that's that. Yeah, see, at this point, I don't know. I, I kind of just suspend my disbelief and try to imagine that. Okay, well, maybe this is this is what it is. Char- Charlton Heston's trying to solve a riddle here because, like, one thing that's, and they have this sort of ensemble. I mean, the re- realism for me, as someone who was born in the eighties and has flown planes, um, and largely in the post nine eleven era, right? Where I don't think I'd be able to ch- to to just like take a cello on a plane and just put it in some kind of a closet that they have in there. Well, the other piece there is th- well, he this guy. For the cello. He bought the ticket for the cello, so he gave his seat up to this you know guy who shows Brolin. up at the last minute to Shane Brolin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, so hey. I- I always buy a first-class ticket for my cello, but hey, if we can find a safe place for my cello, you can sit next to me, buddy. Yeah. Really? <laughs> but in the yeah, and so I kind of take it as okay. Well, is this just the uh, melody of this film that they at some point the guy just just takes out his cello and just entertains the crowd like the way you entertain a campfire with a guitar? <laughs> and, when you're being hijacked, nothing makes sense. Yeah, so it's just I don't know. Like we're just like what are, what are we gonna do? Like we're hijacked, so might as well chill, right? And before everything happens, like you know, you're in in sixties, I suppose, or in I, I think in, in some kind of a fantasy land because Charlton Heston's smoking a pipe while piloting a plane, right? Yeah. So I'm just like, is this just the film being ridiculous, or is this just the seventies, or maybe That's... the sixties, or the seventies as imagined by people who? fly first class in chartered planes because they're 65 years old and they're like studio heads and they don't know what flying coach feels like. I think that's a piece. But at the same time, I think also like a a pilot smoking a pipe in the vessel, absolutely commonplace. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, Liam Neeson smoked a cigarette on a plane and he had a gun and that was in 2014. So I don't know. You tell me. (laughs) But... But yeah, so I, that's kind of how I see it. Like Charlton Heston's like a vestige of the 60s as well because he's the same Charlton Heston who, who just four years earlier was in the Planet of the Apes, mm-hmm. right? Uh, where he was also in a cockpit and the cockpit had like this sort of the barber shop, like spinny thing in it. Yes. To indicate <laughs> something. And so that's kind of how fake this was. So it's kind of just very, I don't, I don't want to say like very sort of um, short span of time from like the sort of the Star Trek era of cardboard sets or maybe this is all concurrent as well because that kind of science fiction goes on like the soil and green doesn't look mm-hmm. anywhere near as realistic as say or realistic or let's just say believable as something like Star Wars does mm-hmm. yeah so I think that's kind of where you are like you're not in the French connection you're in the French connection as imagined by people who did Dr. Zhivago just a few years earlier. That's bang on. <laughs> That's, <it. laughs> That's exactly it. And, and even at the script level, I think there's there's a piece that whoever wrote this, forget their names. Uh, Stanley Greenberg? They don't know what to do with characters. So we've got to put in a romance. 
Now, did you catch this? I had to sort of go back and look at a couple of these scenes. There's, there's some weird flashbacks in here. And like, there's a story where Charlton Heston... <laughs> Charlton Heston's like family drama. <laughs> Yvette Mimieux, I think that's her name. She's the lead flight attendant. Yvette Mimieux. So she and Charlton Heston had an affair. But I now... Can't leave him alone, can you? <laughs> Charlton <yeah>. Heston. <laughs> Yvette Mimieux is really, truly in love with the co-pilot. And we get flashbacks for each of them. And there, there's this horrible flashback where Heston is pushing Mimieux on a swing. <laughs> yep. Why? Why am I spending time in this flashback of fluff? But this says, like, the creation of this script is in the hands of someone a they know that they want to emulate something real, but they're coming from a background where you have uh, women in westerns, and you know they're you know they're lovely ladies, and all they're good for is sort of holding down the homestead for yep. the men, and, and and that's sort of the nature of this script. And well, goodness, we've got to have a romance in here, and what can we do to uh, increase the drama on the plane? I, I know we can have. A pregnant passenger. <laughs> oh yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just a shit show of ideas that are adjacently connected to this hijacking, and it just, I just feel that sort of the, the script itself has, has no real idea what it's doing, except that the writer was really upset to watch in the news how there was a hijacking last week. So <laughs> I should, I should write it. I should write a story about that. I mean, they probably told him. Uh, I, I think, you know, the writer, by the way, so quickly checked his credentials. Because I, the name kind of rang, rang a bell to me. It's just like, does it, do, I know, do I know him from from somewhere? And he's the guy who then wrote Soylent Green. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, Soylent Green and this are his only theatrical credits. Everything else is either TV movie or a TV show. Like he wrote for the Bill Cosby show in the 70s, two episodes he did, or Man in a Suitcase he did, five episodes. You know, staff writer. So like, the defenders what it feels like. So that's the staff fair. writer, you're given your assignment, you know? Yeah. So he's a guy who's told, like, look, I need you to write me a script that's, that's going to kind of just cash in on airport. Do it, you know? Yep. And he writes it kind of like that. So based on the sort of like the experience of writing on TV movies and TV shows, so he knows that he writes for a for a runtime. He writes writes to kind of just I don't know uh, rhyme with ad breaks and shit like this, right? Mm-hmm. I yeah. suppose. So <laughs> it is what it is. However, yeah. at the same time, like well, okay, well, so there's the ambiance of the sort of the sixties and the seventies. There's Charlton Heston. So you have got Ben Hoor. <laughs> just and you know captain ben, what's his face from the planet of the apes right who's who's kind of manning the uh the cockpit together with well not one but two people right and the, the flight attendants get get real mistreated and they're sort of weird sort of coffee shop that they have in there instead of a first class whatever yeah but but the whole crux of the film is that there's one of these passengers, and that's a mystery, right? One of the passengers uh, leaves a message on the um, 
on a mirror. I could have actually started the episode like pack your lipstick and your cello and <laughs> listen to the Anchor Gems <laughs> podcast. But you know, um, but he some he so the person leaves um, a message on the on on the mirror in a in a bathroom saying like there's a bomb on the plane and to go to Anchorage. Okay, and then the as you say, what it looks like the 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 crux of the film would be the mystery of who's behind the threat. How do you think this 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 film kind of handles the mystery? I think I know the answer, but you know, like I think that at least for a for a little while, it looks like the mystery is going to define the film. Yeah, for a short period of time, it it feels that way. Um, when whenever we get this moment where the lipstick is is revealed, um, just you're mentioning that, and just us us digging into <laughs> sort of the, the DNA of this, Vietnam doesn't flashbacks. it? <laughs> No, but doesn't it feel like that's a moment that would be in a TV movie and the the lady comes out of the bathroom and, you know, says some, you've got to go in and see the bathroom because the camera zooms in and it just feels like cut to commercial break. It just, yes, it, that, that's exactly how tidy this, this feels. So anyway, there's that in terms of this being a mystery. It, yeah, it plays that a little bit. I, I you know, I, I, we talked about this twice in the last month with with non-stop and the commuter uh it's what, yeah, the appreciating the piece, commuter all that much much more now right <laughs> yeah i guess one has to uh what i find sort of curious about this is that so how would this unfold well in the hands of our writer the captain is is uh, the big man on campus so he has to come out of the cockpit and first thing he talks to the the woman susan day from the partridge family uh, because she found, she went into the bathroom and she she found the lipstick writing on the on the mirror. So he just accuses her of doing it. <laughs> and then at one point, uh, the, what's his name? Uh, the guy with the cello, Roosevelt Greer, says, mm-hmm. "Want to talk to the captain?" And Charlatan Heston comes out. And what does he he say? So what do you want? You know, what are your demands? You're clearly the hijacker. So he accuses this guy because the investigation as such, isn't really much of one. It's just Heston points his finger at, like, I think there's four different people, and he just sort of accuses them. What do you want? What are your demands? Why would you do this? And it just sort of, again, an element that the person writing the script has no idea what to do with this idea, how to how to wring the drama out of it. Like, it's... it's Anyway, this is how it handles this mystery, whereas we see with... Uh, just last month when we were talking about something like nonstop, there's there's a much more uh, loving relationship the mystery idea has with, say, something like Agatha Christie. That's not here. It's it's just it comes up in these just little little moments of you know the lipstick and the lipstick is foreshadowed in one of the opening shots because you see a close up of a lipstick counter at the at the airport. It just nothing is laid out in a reasonable way. I think for an audience to draw suspense from it, you know, like it, it, this isn't going to cook like a, a Hitchcock film no. or something with Ag- Agatha Christie's name attached to it. It just, it, it's not. Tr- maybe it's trying to be, but it doesn't really understand the mechanics of that. It doesn't how to understand how to slow it down or, you know, give us a detective because Heston accuses a few people couple different times but then he goes back to the cockpit and our attention is elsewhere so the the mystery it doesn't sit with us in any type of way that makes us feel uncomfortable because Mm -hmm. 
I think the energy of the film uh, has to be one. Okay, now we've got to cut to other people. We've got to cut to see what else is going on. So you cut to these other uh, uh, crew member doing something or other uh, travelers that are doing something. So it's it just sort of all over the math, map and doesn't really know what to do with this piece that could have a little bit of suspenseful weight. I mean, the, the mystery is kind of like thinly written anyway, because I think you kind of, I mean, you kind of know it's going to be James Brolin anyway. Spoiler, by the way. Uh, the, not the minute you meet him, but the minute they sit down and they talk about his sister and doesn't know who he is, who he's talking about. He's clearly like making stuff up. And then actually Roosevelt Greer goes to Charlton Heston and he says like, this guy who sits next to me, he's weird. I think he's the hijacker. And, and there's just like, actually Hitch, in, in Hitchcockian terms, this is actually quite smart. Because the guy goes and tells him, look, this guy is the villain, right? So your immediate assumption, the Agatha Christian assumption, will be that this is a red herring. Or it's going sure. to be someone else. Or maybe it's Roosevelt Greer. Or maybe it's Charlton Heston. I don't know. But it turns out it's James Brolin. But I think we don't find out, and this is something, This I'm a few days removed, something we don't find out until they land. Because they divert the plane to Anchorage, as per demands, they lower the the alt- altitude, which is the the bomb protocol or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they fly to Anchorage, and there's some terrible weather. They're 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 trying to land, and there's this small plane that's trying to land at the same time, but they don't have the radio, and so there's a piece of suspense that I actually quite like. Where the where the small plane and there's a aerial footage of this massive airliner very close to the small plane. Yep, looks uh, good. Yeah, which I, which looks good. And I think they land in in Anchorage, and only then we find out. Do I remember this correctly? Gosh, the, yeah, I watched it this afternoon. Finished watching it on my lunch, <laughs> to be honest, and I forget exactly if it's right before or right after, but it's right around. Anchorage. It might be just before. I want to say, which is a, but, which is an interesting moment because I think it's just smack in the middle of the film, mm-hmm. and then this thing comes out, and then I think Weber, which is James Brown, just takes out like a grenade out of his bag, and he goes like, "I'm blowing this thing all to hell and whatever, and just you need to take me to Russia. I'm gonna surrender myself into Russians." And he's just saying like, "Okay." I quickly just look at the time left. Oh, are we going to be here for like 50 minutes more doing what? <laughs> are we, because we already landed, like what's going what's yeah. to happen? And they refuel and then just take off. <laughs> it's bizarre, isn't it? You know, <laughs> the, yeah, so the reveal happens around the time, maybe it is after they land, um, but the reveal happens around the time of landing in uh, Anchorage. And this is whatever, an hour or so into the film. Uh, and for whatever the reason, the script gives us the villain clearly, and the villain says, okay, let's refuel and go, and that's it. Like, it's really peculiar to me that I don't get why. Like, you know, it's it's very loosely explained that, you know, this, this guy um, has delusions of grandeur, and he's struggling with the fact that he's come back from Vietnam and, you know, uh, no one cares and the government doesn't appreciate him. But 
I don't get, this is not articulated why he wants to go to Russia. Uh, like we get a little dream sequence. It, it doesn't add up. It's just, we've got to turn this into two hours. So, okay, well, we got to get up in the air again. So I don't know how to articulate what's missing, <laughs> but uh, there's, there's, it's just re- a really weakly constructed conflict. And maybe part of it is there's this idea that maybe the contract between the filmmakers and me, the audience is that, okay, this is a skyjacking film. This should take the whole duration of the film or up until the denouement or the, the climax should happen here. But no, it's, it sort of stops. Mm-hmm. And then the nature of the drama changes from, you know, this mystery and the fact that there's a bomb on the plane and who is it, it shifts to, well, now there's someone at gunpoint, basically. And the, the last third of the film is just, just someone at gunpoint doing whatever the uh, the villain demands. And it's not engaging. I guess I'll, I'll leave it at that. I, I, I haven't articulated anything clearly there, but it's it's just, it's start, stop. It's not engaging. And it just, it feels... It feels like when I was a kid and I would play with action figures and I'd have these two little men and they'd be shooting at one another. All I needed in my head was that one one guy was good and one guy was bad. And then mm-hmm. they'd have a shootout and then I'd, the, I'd run the characters over to, you know, of another place that I'd have set up as a fort with blocks. And then they'd have another shootout there. And it was just very episodic and jarring. And all I was after was just sort of these quick little engagements but there's no real story or through line here. And I feel that's all this is. It's just plotting these little engagements with the villain. Uh, the first one is via a mystery. And the second one was, you know, well, you're you're a hostage now. You're under the gun of, you know, someone who's unhinged. So what? Uh, here's the question. Mm-hmm. Is this one of the first films to actually... Because um, I agree. Yeah, it's, it's very just thinly plotted and i'm just saying okay is this just an accidental one of the sort of seminal examples of dealing with people coming back from vietnam so with this sort of disillusioned because this is a one of the i suppose last talking points i have because there's not much in here um is the um the idea because vietnam war is still happening in 1972 right and i think you you start seeing these post-Vietnam films in mid to late 70s. You see Coming Home. You see Deer Hunter. That kind of stuff comes comes like later on. Yeah. Rolling Thunder. Yeah. Another one that's kind of a bit later in the game. <sighs> what yeah. else? Uh, and I'm just thinking... Deer Hunter. Oh, Black Sunday is another one that's also um like Bruce Dern is also a similar like he's like the Manchurian candidate almost, right? But he's he's also a terrorist who's like a disillusioned soldier coming back from Vietnam because he didn't get the kudos, he didn't get the uh, appreciation for sacrificing his life for the country. And Josh Josh Brolin, James Brolin it's kind of like that. And I'm wondering, yeah. in 1972, 
is he one of the first ones, hmm. first characters to be kind of like that? Just trying to uh, Google and just ask this is Chat me GPT rambling as I see <laughs> as I see you Google. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The research department is uh, busy here. Um, it may be because like what I'm what I'm getting honestly are you know the the films like you mentioned like Coming Home and uh, Rambo and Deer Hunter and you know these these types. Rambo is like 1981. Right? Yeah, yeah. So and after a big event that a community or a society has to process like a war, like COVID or like the administration of a, a government. It's often like a decade or so before it's articulated in characters in uh, books and film. I want to say, you know, sometimes less, less, but um, takes a little while for I mean, nowadays. It's, I think it's a bit quicker. I think it maybe would this be a function of how just the war is? Because I think it took a while for World War II to come back with, call it historical revisionism or some kind of criticism aimed towards certain aspects of the war history. Because like in the 1940s, so late 1940s, you'll have the sort of the congratulatory sort of like our, our boys in green, you know, just or the closest you'd get to some kind of a, realization of how much of a tragedy this was for people involved in the conflict would be probably the best years of our lives but it's still it's in the context of like we did our bit for the country we did our bit for the good for for the good of the world you know like the guy loses his arms and shit so and we just sacrifice our youth so that um, other people would get to have theirs you know that's kind of like that and then i think it took a decade for um uh, from here to eternity mm-hmm. to become yeah. one of the first pieces of criticism. And I think like now, like Iraq, like you, like, like bombs were flying over, like, like dropping on Iraq and we had movies about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, not necessarily a lot though. Like for instance, I, I can't really think of any films that sort of cover the events of Trump's first administration. There are going to be, but, you know, it usually takes a little bit of time. Um, but at any rate, there, going, going there, back there are, 30, 40 years. Yeah. But there, there are films like this, like Spielberg almost immediately did the post. Sure, sure. In that time, even though it's, yeah. it relates to the 70s, but, it, but it's a reactionary piece to current political events. And there, there are certainly exceptions too, but in a general sense, it takes a little, a little bit of time. Is is my point? Um, I think going back to the late sixties and seventies, one thing that was also happening around then is um, after a period in the West of development and growth and strong economies, it turned into uh, a, a market, an atmosphere, uh, a culture where every household had a t- had a TV, mm-hmm. and suddenly the regular news was not arriving via uh, the newspaper or via the radio shows in the evening. It was arriving via t- uh, television at 6 p.m. and 10 p.m. In, in households. And when footage of Vietnam was hitting uh, American households like two or three days after the footage was shot, like this 
this was something I, I, I feel changed the nation in a way. And I think that this is part of why um, you had uh, a culture uh, on universities of protest saying this is horrible. Uh, I think further to that, people wanted something different from their entertainment. Who wants to go see Oliver? <laughs> Who wants to go see Mary Poppins in, you know, when this is going on in the world? And, you know, so the 60s and 70s became very serious and, and reflective. So there's time for, uh, for escapism and there's time for, you know, sort of reflection and being a little bit more serious. And I, I think, honestly, Vietnam had a huge uh, stake in that. Um, mm-hmm. I forget where I even was going to go with this, but I, I guess I will. Sorry. <laughs> No, no this is my this is my curse. If I get on a ramble, I don't know where I was going with it. Um, except to say, maybe I'll, I'll wheel it around back to uh, the idea of these uh, returning vet films. It makes sense to me that they start in the mid seventies or so. So you may very well be onto something that this is one of the first. Hmm. Makes total sense, um, you know, because I think it's sort of a new it's a new thing to reflect on. Uh, but you know, it'd be the new Hollywood guys, the, uh, you know, Ashby's and Chimino's and whomever else is that sort of, you know, tackle this maybe more profoundly and later on, but this could very well be an early on, uh, example of it. Mm -hmm. I feel that the, the role is written with, you know, sort of the role is probably more so looking at, uh, Anthony Perkins and psycho as an inspiration, you know, so, so there's that, but it just, in terms of how it's written, let's, and maybe it's part of the assignment, make this feel realistic. Like, you know, like that Friedkin guy is doing and like the, you know, that Frankenheimer guy is, is doing, make it more realistic like that. Maybe that's just part of the assignment that came out, but it could very well be a very, very early example of a character like that. Also, would it be also, uh, would it be a very early example of a character, especially a villain? Um, who's showing like this sort of disres- not disrespect or disillusionment with authority or because America is very big on its military historically and actually only in the late 60s it kind of starts as you said like showing cracks because there's civil rights movements and uh, and Vietnam War backlash because everyone sees what because that's the def- probably the first is it the first big conflict that's kind of just well let's just say broadcast live to people's I'll houses say or, or close enough right and and in a way because it's also color film that's that's coming back that's a bit of a game changer because you'd have you know choppy old footage from the 40s that would make newsreels that people would see sparingly um, but this is part of news broadcasts and in color and it's grotesque and this mm-hmm. is forming you know, opinions on campuses, opinions in households. Um, so, yeah. So I don't know, in a way I could probably even say maybe this movie is a bit of a, I don't want to say ahead of its time or, but maybe just accidentally it happens to be one of the first in a trend that will crystallize a little bit later in the, in the decade. And it just so happens that it's almost, it's a, it's kind of like an afterthought almost in the film, but I don't mind it anyway. Even though I agree, like the the character kind of looks a little bit like he's kind of like Crispin Glover, sort of energy. <laughs> yeah, somewhere between Crispin Glover and Anthony Perkins. Yes. <laughs> yeah, 
and then he like the wonderful thing is you can accomplish with a group like you can you can you can coerce so many people to do to, into doing so many cool things with just a grenade with a with a pin removed that he yeah. has to just carry in his pocket it's it's just the best but yeah so yeah so that's my take on the villain uh and <laughs> Another thing that's well, another thing that kind of just because the guy says like, "Take me to Russia," right? And I think the Russian sequences that they're well, it was like in the early seventies, so no, no chance this would be shot in Russia. I don't think. Now I was curious where it might have been shot. Like I was reading it was, it was shot, shot in, in like Oakland. Somewhere. Yeah, in America somewhere. <laughs> but I, I doubt this was shot. In Oakland, the Russian sequences because it does seem, you know, legit snow in the ground. But yeah, I'm I'm guessing it's it's probably in Oregon or something. Yeah, but do you think? How do you think it kind of handles it as well? Like this idea of like there's a, there's there's quite a lot of politics baked into it. I, at this point, I was just, I, I was quite surprised that nothing has to do with Palestine and Israel because 1972, I have the the Munich uh, hostage crisis. Mm-hmm. And so PLO was just like real high. Um, it was like the late seventies. You had the um, the one that jo- Jose Padilla did years a few years ago about the Entebbe air- airport. Oh yeah, yeah. Is it seven days in Entebbe or just Entebbe? I don't know. But you know, like this. Forget, yeah, uh, yeah. Let's just say the pa- Palestinian groups were highly active, and I was just weirdly surprised that they had nothing to do with that for instance yeah. and um, this is yeah, they, they make a con- conscious choice to pluck out a guy who's uh, back from Vietnam and he have the, has these weird sequences with flags everywhere where it looks yeah. like a Terry Gilliam film <laughs> <laughs> yeah and again like the the weird device of of using well they're not flashbacks like they're, they're these delusions of being accepted firstly by the American military. So we get a glimpse into maybe what he wished would happen was that he was received like a hero. But in a way that doesn't really make sense because his being there is premeditated. So why would we see him looking forward to being accepted by the American government only to change his mind when everything's premeditated? Uh, but at any rate, towards the end, we get one, maybe two flashbacks of him being accepted by another government. And damn it, if my own country doesn't appreciate me, well, then maybe the Russians will. And I think this is a sentiment that's just really... Boisian for a surprise. Yeah, this, this is very, very weakly thought through, I think, uh, again, at the script level that, you know, that, well, what do we do? We, we have to... Is this like a things- post-Kennedy thing? Yeah, because like Oswald was apparently connected to the Russians. Like mm. he traveled to Russia, and he was like, uh, it was all about Cuba. And maybe this film's way smarter than we think it is. Yeah, or maybe it's us being sort of clever coming up with this stuff that they didn't have any clue as they were putting (laughs) it together. I really don't. We. We need something shocking. We need we need to send them somewhere shocking. You know, like Anchorage is cold. Where do we send them now? Well, we'll send them to Moscow. And no, I, this makes sense because they fly from I don't know wherever, but you know, like in order to fly to Russia, you either have to go 
Well, it makes sense. You go from California up the up the up seaboard Anchorage, to, and then you go to Russia all the way through the north. That's the quickest. Yeah, but I don't think it's a six and a half hour flight like they said. I think I looked it up. It's a nine hour flight from Anchorage. From Anchorage, you know, not that there's a direct flight. So my my research is a little bit uh, well now shaky here. <laughs> I, I doubt there were in 1972. However, if you, really to, <laughs> if you wanted to fly to Russia from Anchorage, you don't have to fly to Moscow. It's very close. It is, and shoot, there was a. It's a kind of one-hour flight what? to Vladivostok, probably, or two-hour flight. It's I, not going to be the best stay ever because I'm not sure Vladivostok is like the best place in the world. It's not. That, it, it's not known for its nightlife. <laughs> <laughs> Crap! I just watched something where there were characters that they flew over the, the Bering Strait and across Alaska, and they wow. Oh, it was it was the third season of uh, Stranger Things. Or fourth season, I think. Don't know. Can't tell you. Okay. Yeah, I think that's what it was. Um, at any rate, the the at the at the root of it, one word: why? Why? Like I'm so oh. disconnected from uh, you, <laughs> you know, know the, my note the says. motives. Yeah. My note says on this film, by the way. Just let me just dig it out because I closed it. He could have just traveled to Berlin. Just did, don't hijack anything. Just. Just traveled. You could, you could fly to Berlin mm-hmm. in the in the seventies. You probably you could probably could because there was the Berlin airlift. So I think you could just fly over the East, East Germany, fly to Berlin, walk to the wall, and surrender. Easy. <laughs> like you don't have to endanger anyone. Yeah. Ex- what a great day would everyone have? <laughs> what? What? Yeah. What? What's your take on? What's your take on the villain? What does he want? Like what? <laughs> What's going on with how this is written? And I think, I think I got you know like I feel like a John Hammond. I, I think I just got taken you know like uh, by the magic of this place because I was just wondering like is this like the first post Vietnam film so early on in the game and I just completely just forgot about how little sense it makes. <laughs> yeah, because it like look, it's one of those that I think in the moment I'm kind of. It's not that I'm just getting off on the realism of this because I'm I'm acutely aware of how much how it, how 60s the 70s film is. Yeah. But if you actually slow down because there is no music it feels a little bit like bullet. I I think like I'm having fun with how these I what I and decode as how these old men try to approximate what young, what young men do for filmmaking. This I can have fun with, but it's in this conversation. Like I feel like as this, not in the moment, <laughs> not in the this. moment. No, no, I can't. Um, because it's not enough to save the film. Like as I'm watching this film and I'm trying to get into the logic of the film, and the screenwriter is trying to message, he's trying to, you know, parlay this drama. I feel like Daniel Craig in Logan Lucky when the Logan boys are explaining the idea of the robbery and he's looking at them like they're crazy. I am incarcerated because they're just throwing out foolishness. And that's how I feel. I feel like this is foolishness. I am not entertained. (laughs) (laughs) I I get it. I get it. Let's see. At the same time, there are moments in this film that kind of take me 
they take quite a while, like the landing set piece where they don't, because there is a storm. It's just simple things. Mm-hmm. You can't see, uh, mm-hmm. all you see is these instruments and um, this will come back. I have no idea what they're looking at. They look at this radar and there's this blip that doesn't change, but like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> is this what the screenwriter imagined what the radar would look like without ever going to visit like a place that would have one? Or just opening a book to just see, or just visiting a library. It doesn't cost you money. Just go go into a library, go into your like engineering section. Just look at like I don't know some diagrams of what a radar screen would look like. I bet you money there are books on this in this mm-hmm. in 1971 when this when this puppy is writing writing this right. So it kind of feels like. Like t- the taking of Pelham one to three, where there's this guy on the radio, just I don't know, like looking at light bulbs. <laughs> yes, <laughs> just and there's t- a, there's a guy. His name is Claude Akins, and like I think I've seen this guy on Gunsmoke or Bonanza or oh, John the controller Ford guy. films, the controller guy, because he again he feels like someone that's displaced from Hollywood because they don't make westerns anymore. And sure enough, he is like he has a background in westerns. Of course, he does. Of course, yeah. <laughs> and I hate yeah. him talking. I, I hate his dialogue. The the character where he's talking him down. Oh my soul! Hmm. <laughs> I mean, what I, what really? Okay, well, if if there is a moment where the movie really shits the bed for me, is the sort of the big climactic showdown again? Like I, I, I think I understand a bit more about what your take on this. It's like the. The last few minutes when they're trying to deal with Weber, so James Brolin's character at the uh, Russian airport where there's this army and it's a standoff and Charlton Heston gets shot, but it's all taking place in the plane and they leave the plane and the guy gets massacred. And the, and at least w- what I like is that so the 1970s Black Sunday style yeah. guy gets guy dies, roll credits, we're done here. Like, yeah, out. let's go. <laughs> <laughs> It's just uh, like, yeah, know, like, absolutely. Like James Brolin doesn't even hit the ground and I'm already in my car, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, precisely. You, you look at the time. It's like, oh, there's, we're, still in, we're still in the air. And, uh, yeah, and there's two minutes is, left. <laughs> yeah, there's like you know, five minutes left. I was like, well, it seems like we have to like land and, you know, I, a, her- a hero has to emerge. The villain has to be dealt with. But I, no, did, boom, I did boom, enjoy boom, these um, fighter jets. That mm. kind of just ominously just do these flybys outside yep. of the plane. Yeah, that's that stuff's well done. Like no question. Like you know, that's that's what there is to rave about in this film for sure. And just Charlton Heston, kind of like in this Planet of the Apes mode, he goes like, "This is Captain So and So. I am being hijacked. American something something." I'm just okay. Yeah. <laughs> Again, this is me just agreeing that I'm watching a '60s film in the '70s, and I'm just happy to observe how they try to approximate what what William Friedkin does effortlessly and how they're almost, I want to say, incidentally inventing a genre. Yeah, because it's it's sort of one of the early ones, right? So for sure. Yeah. 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 Especially, you know, like the guy would come back to do the Towering Inferno and then you have the Poseidon Adventure and you have Earthquake with, what's his face, Gregory Peck? I think so. Yeah, there's Avalanche and Meteor, and there's a, there's a whole ton of these. Mm-hmm. 
So I don't know, like even though I, I, can, I see your point, if you're not having fun, if you're not vibing with this at the time, it's, it's probably a terrible time, mm-hmm. but I, I, I dare you go on YouTube, type in the horror at 37,000 feet and see how this fits and just what? appreciate the genius of this film, comparative terms, genius of this film. Because this what movie is like 73 minutes long and it's the longest 73 minutes of three minutes of your life. Wow. What I'm interested in checking out, actually, um, I had the research department look it up. It's Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. And it is season five, episode three of The Twilight Zone, yep. directed by Richard Donner, written by Richard Matheson, starring William Shatner. And it is like there's a gremlin outside the plane. What year is I, it? 63 25 minutes <laughs> and and i know i is it shadow in the cloud like and i sort of like that one that that's based on this the simpsons did a great uh halloween episode on it where there was a gremlin on the side of the bus that bart was trying to deal with and uh i've never seen this but now that like now that i see richard donner is involved i'm sort of interested half an hour it's a nice <laughs> nice palatable size of viewing anyway so i might try to dig that up from 63 what year was uh was it terror at thirty-seven thousand feet oh the horror at horror. 37 oh is it the terror i don't i don't know uh, it's 1973 <laughs> or two 73 cool anyway by the way, fun fact by the way something i actually had to look up because i didn't quite know because they say oh we're um, we're lowering our altitude because we have a bomb on the plane, so we have to lower it to a to a level where um, um, the explosion wouldn't decompress mm-hmm. the cabin. Is that a thing? Yes, it is a thing, okay. and also it's like the roughly like the eight to nine thousand feet, right? Yeah. But the trade off is that you're using a f- more fuel. I'm just saying, like. Are you really using this much more fuel? How how what's the difference in density of air? Do you want to know? Sure. The traveling altitude, which is called the uh, was it the ceiling of an of an airliner, is roughly forty thousand feet. Mm-hmm. That'll be where they where where they cruise between thirty seven and forty thousand feet, which is like twelve kilometers, right? Yeah. So the air density at that at that uh, altitude is roughly point zero zero four kilograms per meters per meter cube 0. 0.004 so two zero yeah four thousand is 0. 0.413 so it's 100 oh. times denser okay yeah so that's a thing so you just think to yourself like you know like there's it's probably considerable fuel loss when you have to just plow through this much more air just yeah. saying Charlton Heston did it to me <laughs> <laughs> With that, and this is me Thanks, scraping Charlotte. the bottom of the barrel, by the way. Yeah, that's bottom. I'm out. I'm out of. I'm out of bullets here. I, uh, I don't think I have too much. I've got else. the Vietnam. I've got my Rolling Thunder. I've got my. Uh, uh, I've, I've got my Cold War. I've got the Showdown. We've got the Westerns. We've got the Inventing Genre. I've got like so many things we've gone through. Like I can't even imagine we squeezed out this much. So might as well just you know what? What do do we just let's just let's just pack it in. Let's do it. Yeah, Randy. Out of five, and is 
Okay. Uh, oh, gosh. Is it oh, an uncut gem? This narrowly misses the uncut gem status. This is a solid one and a half stars out of five. Solid one and a half. <laughs> did I did I convince you to give it a half star more with my uh, with my bullshit tree? Uh, no, but you know what? A medic in here. <laughs> I you know, another five star conversation, and it it is a little bit reminiscent of uh, Space Rage, right? We didn't <laughs> talk about VHS once. <laughs> <laughs> no, true. But what we did is we really explored the, you know, the era of the film, and we, we, we really found a lot on the periphery. And I feel we did that here, and I uh, really enjoyed that. I think that we're going to be in for quite a bit more of that over the next few weeks, to be honest, as we sort of uh, jump into, you know, seventies air terror, but also seventies uh, disaster films. So, and I think this is a great, great start to that mm-hmm. uh, sequence of episodes that we have coming up. Um, yeah, but this is just largely a mess. I did like trying to, you know, do the DNA analysis on it. And I think that I think we're right in pretty much everything we've said. I, I think that I can see exactly where this came from. I think it's its inspirations are clear. TV movie, simple plotting, simple characters. I think there's a sort of a stable of uh, film people that are just out there ready to work. You just need to tell them what to do. I think that's that's all true. Uh, it doesn't make the film make sense or enjoyable. Like it, it's sort of laughable. So I don't want to say that I totally hated it um, from that way. Like, you know, that my, my face is all scrunched up while I'm watching it. And this is, this is a brutal chore. No, no. Like it's sort of laughable. It's so bad, but you know, I, I can't find too much in here to enjoy. And what I do have that's positive to say about it um, will be in my tops there in a couple minutes. But yeah, no, this is this is a pretty weak film all around. Like not many departments here are doing much to impress me, except mm-hmm. maybe some of the uh, second unit photography stuff. Right. You? So I... <laughs> <laughs> I had three and a half stars worth of fun with this stupid film. Oh, God. I'll do uh, one better. And this is just like patreon.com slash uncutgemspod to find out more. But I'll rewatch this film before I rewatch School Days. Wowzers, wowzers, wowzers. <laughs> even though they're not even on the same like shelf, like let's be honest. But, you know, aim low and just, just you know, like, Look, it's kind of the participation trophy. Like, Billy, you just, like, like the dart had hit the wall. Good job. You know, I don't know. I had I had three and a half stars with, with, with a fun watching some of this crap. Um, and actually almost an equal amount of stars trying to fish out some nuggets and just trying to make it look more important than it probably is. So, you know, who, who am I kidding? Um, uh, however, that's fine. This is, Sometimes those are the types of stars that they're adjacent mm-hmm. and just through some sort of, uh, I don't know, diatomic charge, there's a connection <laughs> and another star gets pulled onto the rating. Yep. I mean, in all fairness, I, could, I, I don't take stars, star ratings too seriously either. So it's kind of like, I don't know. I, it <laughs> felt like three and a half when I was putting it on letterbox and I, especially when I watched terror 37,000 feet I'm just like yep yeah, okay it could be worse than that <laughs> <laughs> so um, but you know 
I don't know, I enjoy Charlton Heston in his 60s mode, specifically when he's already in the 70s and the guys at MGM, they don't quite know what they're doing, but it's, I don't know, but they're they're really trying. And yeah, it's so many anachronisms and just also some some so many weird instances of casual racism. Like who calls the knight, oh, it's black as a... And and just looks like a black guy and just like and just bites his tongue. And just like what kind of a phrase is this? Oh, I know it's the seventies. Yeah, it's not a nice one. Yeah, it's not a nice era <laughs> to be anywhere but anything but white. It's very odd, and it's just like the anachronisms, just in general, like these people smoking pipes. Uh, how like how like lacks the security is the the guy just smuggles an entire bag full of grenades and that's fine. Yeah, on board. Sure. and a gun too. Oh, there's so many horrible things. I, I think I might go way past my three. And then you know I can, and uh, and the pilot I think has his own gun. Because mm-hmm. why not? I don't know. Sure. It, it's I don't know. It's it's fun. But again, watch at your own risk. This this move. This is three and a half stars worth of fun from Jakob that comes with a health warning. <laughs> yes, fair. Fair okay, enough. I'm gonna leave it there. Just this is a compromise for me. I'm not gonna call it an uncut gem. Like watch out your own risk. And if you complained, it's like I watched this three and a half star film and don't shit. I'm just like, did you not listen to a word yeah. I just said? <laughs> exactly. <sighs> Good so Lord, Randy the, was there screaming and shouting out su- the warnings, <laughs> suffering in silence. <laughs> uh, okay, let's go through our tops. Let's see how that goes. Ah, tops. Okay. So just a mini here. I sort of like the idea of this extra card table in first class. I thought that was sort of bizarre and sort of fun to see. Um, But as for the serious tops, um, I got a few. I got a few. So the Russian jets just show up. And I think that's all great. The jets look good when they're flying in formation beside a jet. That's great. There's a number of shots where the jets are, you know, approaching from the horizon and just sort of flying overhead. Those shots all all look great. Uh, and they're repeated quite a bit in a, like a little one and a half minute sequence where it just seems these four jets are always coming right at you and going over you. And then <laughs> quick cut to Charlatan Heston's face and then another cut. And then there's those jets again on the horizon coming at us, flying over. But it's all it all looks really good. Got to say. Um, mm-hmm. I will also give credit to the lipstick on the mirror. It, you know, it sort of looks good. It's sort of a, you know, neat way to communicate your message. Not super fresh or anything. <laughs> it's but like Terra Train for a second. Yeah. Um, I do really like the small plane nearly getting creamed by the big one. That <laughs> yeah. that looks legit. There's probably a force perspective thing going on where they're not as close as they look. The planes but it looks really good. And the big plane does seemingly seem to come out of the fog. It, it just looks really good. I like that. Um, and my number one, cause I laughed. I really like this. There's a brief fight in the cockpit towards the end where Shane Brolin grabs Charlatan Heston's face and he grabs his cheeks and he pushes his face back. Like, you know, it, it looks like Heston's getting a, 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 yeah, his face is getting stretched back. He's getting a facelift or something. He's just got the most bizarre uh, facial expression. 
you know, it's something that when I'm playing with a four-year-old child and just making goo-goo faces that you stretch your face weird, that's the moment that this is. And I laughed and made me think of Rob Lowe's uh, facelift face <laughs> in Behind the Candelabra. <laughs> so I just Seriously. had a great, a great laugh at that, uh, you know, moment in the dying minutes. <laughs> What's awesome. your mind? I've got... Just this, you know, just the fact that he smokes a pipe. <laughs> I really like that. Um, I've got, okay, well, the landing scene, the whole sequence of them looking at the uh, at the radar and just trying to communicate what's going on, the weather. It's a tense moment. I, li- I liked mm-hmm. it. Um, I've got the... <laughs> This is an echo chamber. The aerial shots of the fighters, were, and I think they they got like forty five seconds of footage, and they called it a day, and then just repurposed the living Jesus out of yeah. out of what they had. Yeah, uh, but it looks the part, um, really good, and I and absolutely like when I saw the sort of the the plane coming out of the fog and nearly just taking out this small plane, and I know like this is a this must be way safer than it look than it looks. It probably still required a few permits <laughs> yeah probably uh, yeah <laughs> um, that's, that's something that's, that i really like and uh yeah there is three and and one honorable so let's just take it through our bottoms and see how that how that goes okay so i've been pretty good for months and months now just sticking to three or four so i'm gonna now take out all your 17 yeah okay <laughs> Uh, okay. I always buy a first class seat for my cello. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, pregnant also, mom he's drinking a, alert. A wealthy black man with his cello, just saying. In the 70s. Well, way social, ahead of its time. Well, there's a social commentary in there that we're missing, yeah, I suppose. Yep. Uh, pregnant mom drinking alert, just just to say. Uh, 70s again. <laughs> the, the guy in the ground, what was his... Uh, Claude Aiken, I think his name was. Just he's this cowboy that wants to talk tough and rough and surly. Screw the regulations. Give your heart to God because your ass belongs to me. Ugh, that is so brutal. I, you know, and it just feels so misplaced. And that's that this this guy and this scene and this type of talk just makes me. That's what made me feel like this is just displaced Western actors in an era that doesn't have westerns to act in uh, or write for anyway so there's that it sort of bothered me that no one on the flight seemed too concerned about you know changing course from minneapolis to anchorage oh well (laughs) or or being hijacked or there being a bomb on board for instance look they had 160 hijackings in the decade before they were just like oh getting hijacked again and someone on the plane goes like it's my fourth time actually jesus <laughs> yeah, but, christ what a maybe bummer. maybe and that's why this is rich for uh zucker and abrams to sort of you know take this and and make airplane uh because it's silly <laughs> it's, oh man golly yeah so anyway that's stupid uh <laughs> The, the passengers in economy, like we don't get too much time with them. So they probably only had the extras for a couple of days. But there's this one hilarious moment to me that the flight attendants are walking through economy and there's a 
bit of a ruckus. I think they're, the, there's been turbulence and they're about to land. And there's this guy who looks like he's 60 and he's got a toddler and he just hands the toddler to the flight attendant because it just seems like, you know, the, the director called for, okay, chaos, action. So everyone's sort of, sort of shifting about and this old man takes his toddler and hands it to the uh, flight attendant. I just thought this is just sort of chaotic. It doesn't make any sense. Um, Brolin's karate chop. I thought that was really sort of stupid. Yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Nasty, stupid. Um, okay. <laughs> the crack criminal investigative team that's, do- that's doing all the legwork on the ground. There's a guy that phones the cockpit at one point and says, well, there's no Jerry Weber in our records. Uh, but we found there's a Jerry Weller guy who was released from a mental hospital. <laughs> and that's, that's the exposition right there. That's the backstory. Uh, another bad moment because the lipstick with the warning was found in the bathroom. So at one point, Yvette Mimieux, she makes an announcement to the whole plane. Her bathroom has backed up in case you were wondering. <laughs> <laughs> it's a ridiculous announcement um at one point i think it was uh heston you know because he's he's the investigator on the plane and he's saying well who would have used the bathroom in first class and mimia says oh well it has to you know the hijacker has to be someone in first class and heston follows up and says well do you think someone from economy would have used this bathroom and the flight attendant's response not on my flight. <laughs> Social so commentary. St- so stupid. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm getting into the the good ones here. The, the racism here. The black flight attendant, uh, Miss Lovejoy. She's the one who wears the apron. The passenger, uh, Susan Day, after she finds the lipstick warning in the bathroom, she approaches... Uh, Lovejoy and uh, Susan, uh, sorry, uh, and Mim, uh, Mimieux, Yvette Mimieux. And she says, Miss, Miss. And Lovejoy looks at her and she says, Miss, Miss, again, until Just the white flight her. attendant turns around. <laughs> so brutal. So this, this poor, this poor woman. And she's constantly being bossed around. And then when she jumps at the chute and the men at the bottom don't catch her, she slides off the chute. Uh, so yeah, the, the racism in here, uh, that's what I mean when I said it was bizarre race racism. So anyway, the line the co-pilot says to uh, Yvette Mimieux, don't worry, it's just a bomb. Worrying will put lines on your face. <laughs> Brutal. Uh, number two. Misogyny. Check. <laughs> Flashback of Charlton Heston pushing the flight attendant on a swing. And <laughs> then we find out later it it was an affair. Anyway, it's this is so terrible. Uh and yes, and then number one, Captain Charlton Heston allowing the whole film to happen because he broke the rules and let Brolin on the flight to begin with. We'll find him a spot, let him on. So there's that. <laughs> wow, we so sorry. List. It's quite a list. Okay, thank you for I've indulging got... me. 
<laughs> on the theme of casual misogyny. Because I, I think, so, I can't remember whether this is his co-pilot or someone. When they, I think it's when they notice, when, when they learn about the lipstick and the comment, maybe it's a menopausal broad. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh my God. Yeah. Like, of course. <laughs> What a line. Uh, I've got... Uh, in Anchorage, they they land and they have journalists taking pictures and the weather's shit. Yeah. But they're taking flash photography from an inside of a van. I think I, nice. I think they'll be disappointed with their <laughs> with their output. Well... Those Alaskan reporters, <laughs> they're not the sharpest bunch, I guess. Um, I, I've got um, the, uh, the the FBI agent that climbs aboard a plane and freezes, but they but they defrost him, <laughs> <laughs> and he does nothing. <laughs> he does, but he's he's the source of weaponry for them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've got a note that says being kissed by Charlton Heston must be scary. Because <laughs> this is scene, I can't remember if this is if, if this is the flight attendant or his just wife. They're just she's just sitting sitting on a blanket, shitting on a blanket, sitting on a blanket, and just like leans in and kisses her. And I'm pretty sure he just like caved all her teeth in. <laughs> this stuff, like the nineteen fifties go. <laughs> devours her mandible Jesus Christ <laughs> and um, uh, I'm gonna leave leave out the casual racism because you mentioned this oh, but I'll just reiterate that the, the line I have in bold was he could have just traveled to Berlin <laughs> <laughs> this movie didn't have to happen yeah, and we have two reasons right yeah uh, if James Weber is it Weber Jim, James Brolin, just Shane Brolin, yeah, yeah. If he just took a different flight, none of this would have happened. Uh, so yeah, that's us. So you can. It's very hard to find this, but I if you if you trust Randy's opinion, you don't really don't you don't really have to look out and find it. Um, but you can rent or buy it on iTunes in Canada, and I'm pretty sure you're regretting the purchase at this point. How much was it? I think it was ten bucks. Ten bucks. Yeah. So well, it's like five eighty or something, or six twenty pounds. So anyway, so if you have Surfshark VPN, if <laughs> if you switch your server to Brazil, it's on some kind of a weird streaming service like Plex, but in all in Portuguese. But the film's in English, so you can watch it there for free. Which is <laughs> <laughs> how I watched it in, on the Brazilian streaming service. Because why should I pay money for this uh, when someone's kind enough to let me to let me watch it um, in a country that I don't live in? <sighs> yeah. Other than that, it's very difficult to track down. But then again, once more, if you trust Randy's opinion, you don't really have to. You'll be fine. As I say, it's still three and a half stars worth of worth of fun. That's absolutely brain dead. But hey, mm-hmm. anyway, we've done it. So first episode of our Terror in the Sky 
is in the bag. Now, what we need to put in the bag is our socials. So, Randy? All right. Everyone, you can find me on X at Randy Burroughs. You can find me on Letterboxd at Bratch7. And you can find me writing at least a little bit. Um, Jakob here hosted my recent essay on uh, Liam Neeson and Barbie and Ken on his site, flashonfilm.com. Go check that out. You can find me on my Facebook group, Island Film Geeks. And that's it for me. Awesome. So you can find me uh, on X at Talk About Film, posting pictures of warehouses, as in werewolf houses. And just, I started demanding that someone remasters Congo. I need to watch this in a gr- in great quality. Someone needs to do this. Uh, Jakub Flash on Letterboxd, flashonfilm.com, F-L-A-S-Z on film.com. I also write occasionally on Medium, where I don't, when, where I have something to say that doesn't relate to film, I suppose. I kind of just put a div- dividing sort of line somewhere in there. And, you know, find the show at Uncut Gems Pod everywhere. UncutGemsPodcast.com is our HQ where you can browse all our shizzle. And also remember that we have a Patreon account where we have bonus shows, which is patreon.com slash UncutGemsPod, where three bucks a month worth of support buys you access to everything we have. And we have loads. So get in there. Also, you can leave us a donation at ko-fi.com slash UncutGemsPod. That's ko-fi.com slash UncutGemsPod. And if you don't feel like spending money, totally get it. Uh, Just leave us a review, leave us a star rating, or just tell a friend. And that's it. That wraps wraps up the uh, proceedings of the evening. Uh, And with that, we cordially invite you to uh, stay on board with us as we uh, proceed through Terrors in the Sky in the 70s. Next week, stay tuned on our Patreon. Airport's going to make land, make, well, it's going to land or make landfall. Hurricanes make landfalls. <laughs> uh, but yeah, airport's going to land. Weird thing to say. <laughs> um, and also on the main show, we will be talking about the sequels to it. All three. and So it's going to be a big episode. So we're going to be talking about Airport 75, Airport 77, and Concord.org. I don't know, colon, airport 79, or airport 79, colon, Concord. Or is it an ellipsis? Or is it an ellipsis? Dare I say. Maybe. Now I want to Research department needs to get get back to us on this. Ellipsis. The what? Concord, the Concord Ellipsis Airport 79. There you go. Stay tuned for that. All three in one episode next week. And uh, yeah, so fasten your seatbelts, put your, put your headrests up and whatever. And just get ready for landing. <sighs> I hope you got skyjacked with us because I don't know. It's late. Let's just <laughs> call it a day. Take care. Bye-bye. See you next week.